Hello and welcome to this podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the Business Week ended 17th June 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This time, key takeaways from the bio meeting, a new alopecia option in the US, how one small specialist company entered Japan, and the evolving BTK inhibitor landscape in multiple sclerosis. The annual Bio International Convention finally resumed in person on 13th June in San Diego after COVID-19 kept the industry from meeting face-to-face in 2020 and 2021. But the conference came at a tumultuous time for biopharmaceutical companies. The convention, a prime venue for partnering discussions, may be occurring just in time for firms that could benefit from some collaboration cash while other financing sources may be elusive. The script team writes that turbulent trading in the stock market, mainly due to macroeconomic concerns such as rising inflation, shrinking inventories and the war in Ukraine, has had a big impact on biopharma company valuations, which have been plummeting since the second half of 2021. Many drug developers have restructured, implementing significant job cuts in the process to conserve cash on hand rather than raise money at low valuations. Bio, however, provides opportunities for biopharma executives to meet with both investors and potential partners to make the case for a new financing or a deal that can bring in significant cash. The meeting also offers a chance to hear from big pharma business development executives about what their companies are interested in buying or licensing. Investors also gave their perspectives about what new innovations are worth backing and how to manage money during this rough period in the financial markets. So with biotech firms at a crossroads with plummeting valuations and fundraising difficulties, Big Pharma and other potential partners are hungry for deals, and the bio-meeting was a good place to see what funding and deal-making opportunities remain. One of the people Scripps spoke to was Organon CEO Kevin Alley on 13th June about a deal the company announced on the first day of the meeting. A global license agreement with Shanghai Henlius Biotech giving the company rights to commercialise biosimilar candidates referencing Roche's targeted breast cancer therapy Pajeta and Amgen's bone-strengthening drug Prolia or Exteva. Henius, which received $73 million up front, retains commercial opportunities in China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan. Organon has an option to licence rights to a third biosimilar for the BMS immuno-oncology drug Yervoy. Ali conceded that analysts were sceptical that biosimilars could be a growth business, but explained that the right investments in the space could make it attractive. In fact, he noted Organon was able to grow its biosimilars business by double digits during the past year. In its Beyond Borders 2022 report, released at the start of the bioconference, Ernst Young says that the biotech sector has thrived through the challenges it faced five years ago and remains poised for continued success despite an environment in which the company valuations have declined and the initial public offering window is virtually closed. From the uncertainty of Brexit and the potential impact of the new Trump administration on the US healthcare system in 2017, the biotech sector not only survived but thrived throughout these and subsequent disruptions, the report states, including the COVID-19 pandemic and ensuing supply chain disruption. The current environment means biotech yet again is facing uncharted waters, EY said. But its success, despite the challenges of the past five years, suggests the sector will continue to thrive. Above all, the past five years have delivered an irrefutable lesson in the resilience of biotech, EY stated. 
Staying with Bio, the day two article noted that biotechnology stock valuations are down 30 to 50% over the past year, impacting the ability of private drug developers to go public and for companies to raise cash in follow-on offerings. So companies are looking for alternative strategies. Ways to navigate these rough waters was a key focus at Bio. There were only nine initial public offerings by biopharmaceutical companies in the US during the first quarter of 2022 versus 32 in the first quarter of 2021, with the IPO proceeds totaling just $807 million in Q1 of this year versus $5.2 billion in Q1 of last year, according to Scripps Tally. With funding down across the board, cost-cutting may be required. However, companies are hungry for deals to fill their pipelines as key products face generic competition over the next decade. So collaborations, licensing agreements and acquisitions could be a life preserver. CeraVance is preparing to initiate a pivotal trial for its first-in-class Parkinson's disease drug in the first quarter of 2023, but first needs to raise a Series C venture capital round. CEO Craig Thompson told Scrip in an interview at Bio that it's a challenging time to be out raising VC funding, since the upheaval in the public markets is being felt by private biofarm firms as well. But the company feels confident about its chances to raise cash because of the positive phase two results it reported for the lead drug candidate CVN424, a GPR6 inverse agonist, in March. Every company is finding the financial markets difficult because of the turmoil being experienced on a macro scale, he noted. Even so, there are plenty of reasons for optimism about the sector, the biomeeting heard. McKinsey partner Lydia Fay, at a 14th June panel discussion, noted that the consulting giant was unabashedly optimistic for startups that can offer cutting-edge platform technologies. The platforms creating most excitement for VCs are those that offer tailored treatments that can be delivered accurately to the target site, she said. Panelists during a 14th June session titled How to Survive a Stormy Biotech Season Thriving in a Challenging Market addressed strategies that they have employed or that they recommend for peers who are struggling. They also acknowledged that a reckoning is coming, as has happened in prior economic downturns. Silverback Therapeutics CEO Laura Shorver noted that she's been in the biopharma business since 1989, and I've seen this movie before in 2008. We will come out on the other side, Shorver said, but not all companies will survive. The US FDA approved Eli Lilly's Jack inhibitor olumiant for the treatment of severe alopecia areata, marking the first systemic treatment approved for the disorder that can cause patchy baldness. With the 13th June approval, Lilly beat a close rival, Pfizer, to the market. Jessica Merrill writes that the FDA approved Olimiant for rheumatoid arthritis in 2018, but the drug has faced a challenging commercial market due to safety concerns with the JAK inhibitor class generally, but also with Olimiant specifically. Those concerns resulted in only the lower 2mg dose being approved for RA, a dose that delivered relatively modest efficacy. In Europe, the drug received approval earlier for RA in 2016 and was also approved for atopic dermatitis. It was recently recommended for approval there for alopecia areata. It remains to be seen how cautiously doctors and patients will consider the new medication, given the safety issues associated with the class of drugs. Olimiant, like other JAK inhibitors, carries boxed warnings on the risk of serious infection 
malignancy, and cardiovascular events, and their use was recently restricted by the FDA to the post-TNF setting after a post-marketing study of Pfizer's Zelljans showed an increased risk of cardiovascular events. The approval in the new indication is based on the positive results of two phase 3 trials in patients who had at least 50% scalp hair loss as measured by the severity of alopecia tool for more than six months. Pfizer is just behind Lilly in seeking to bring a drug to market for alopecia. The company guided investors that it's on track to file its JAK3 tech inhibitor, ritalocitinib, for alopecia areata in the second quarter. Meanwhile, Concert Pharmaceuticals is developing a deuterated formula of the JAK inhibitor roxolitinib and believes the drug could have advantages over the competition. Belgian bioventure Argenix has made a rapid and smooth entry into the sometimes challenging Japanese market with its generalised myasthenia gravis drug, Vivgard. Lisa Takagi writes that although moving into the country wasn't in the firm's original business plans, the local approval of the antibody fragment went without a hitch and came almost as quickly as in the US. This is unusual given a strict approval system that has provided certain challenges to many foreign pharmaceutical firms, with Argenix attributing its journey mainly to medical need and close communication with regulators. Vivgard was launched in Japan in May for patients whose symptoms have not approved on immunosuppressive drugs, including steroids. The advanced state of myasthenia gravis is thought to affect 18,000 to 24,000 patients in Japan. Vivgard obtained its first global approval in the US in December 2021 and has got off to a good start there and is also available in the UK through an early access scheme. Japan granted a wider indication compared to the US. It was approved for use in both ACHR antibody positive and negative patients, while the FDA cleared it only for ACHR positive patients. The wider use came about from a global phase 3 program that included sites in the country from which regulators concluded the drug's efficacy and safety could be established for both groups. Tim van Huameeren, who's founder of Argenix, told Scrip at a press conference in Tokyo that he found the ministry's decision fantastic as ACHR negative patients are underrepresented, super rare, and that it would be almost impossible to run a clinical trial only for them. He admitted that entering Japan wasn't in the firm's original plan until he met Hermann Strenger, who served as the head of Japan operations for Argenix since 2019 and has more than 25 years of experience in the country's industry. Close discussions with regulatory authorities contributed to shortening the time required for local clinical trials, as normally a separate local phase 1 study is needed to confirm safety, which can delay development. In the case of Vivgard, results from phase 1 and 2 studies conducted outside Japan were admitted along with other supporting studies and including Japanese patients in the global phase 3 program was seen as another key to the successful approval. Finally, pharma firms are exploring a class of drugs that have been used successfully in blood cancers as potential new treatments for multiple sclerosis, with the expectation that they could represent a new mechanism of action for treating the chronic neurological condition. The effort to bring the first Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, inhibitor to market for MS involves many players, with Merck KGAA and Sanofi in the apparent lead, and Roche and Novartis close behind. Jessica Mel writes that BTK inhibitors from each of those companies are in phase 3 development and the results of those trials will determine whether the oral small molecules 
could be the next big commercial frontier in MS. The market is already crowded with a wide range of oral and injectable therapies, so new drugs have a high safety and efficacy bar to cross. Despite the various options, however, unmet needs still exist for new treatments because patients with relapsing remitting disease, the most common form of MS, still progress and experience disability, and patients with the less common but more debilitating primary progressive MS still have few options. Sanofi Therapeutic Area Head, MS, Neurology and Gene Therapy, Eric Wallström, agreed that demand for new treatments remains. The good news is that treatments do seem to have an impact on disability, and it seems that the more of what we call high-efficacy drugs, they seem to have more impact. But the bad news is that the curves still worsen, he said. That's where the new compounds come in, trying to improve the situation in progressive disease, because that's an obvious unmet need and where we need treatment, but also trying to improve the long-term outcome in patients with relapsing MS. Among the BTK inhibitors in Phase 3 development, Merck KGAA and Sanofi appear to be in the lead with their respective drugs Ivrobrutinib and Tolibrutinib, and the German drug maker expects to have data from two Phase 3 studies testing Ivrobrutinib in RMS in 2023, with expectations to file in 2024. Sanofi also expects to have data in 2023 from studies testing Tolibrutinib and expects to file in RMS in 2024 and in PPMS in 2025. Being first to market can be a big advantage, but being best in class can also be critical to commercial success. Wallström believes the class of drugs could end up being more differentiated than some, based on their specificity and off-target impact and potency, and how they bind and their brain penetration. That's all for this week. Thanks as always for listening. And a reminder that all these articles in full are linked in the article accompanying this podcast. Log in to Script to access all of our much more extensive global content, or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.